One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, happy new year, and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. The new year began with a tragedy in Istanbul in the form of a terrorist attack on a nightclub which left 39 dead. It's the latest blow to hit a country in turmoil, still reeling from the aftermath of a failed coup in Turkey last year and the political purges that have followed it. To discuss the future of Turkey, I'm joined on the line by our bureau chief, Mehul Srivastava, and here in the studio, our Turkey expert, Daniel Dombey. Mehul, first... What's the mood in Istanbul following the terror attack? I mean, there have been several big terrorist attacks in Turkey in the last year alone. I mean, in the last month alone, this is the fourth major attack in Turkey, the second in Istanbul, just through December and January. And the mood is incredibly subdued, perhaps even more because of the fact that this gunman is still on the loose. Turkey has been under this intense state of emergency with extensive powers that have been given to the police. The fact that this attack could not be thwarted at such a prime location in Istanbul, similar to the one that happened at the Besiktas football stadium, has left many to wonder whether or not the Turkish government is actually in a position to protect them from these very real threats. And the threat is double-pronged in a way, because this appears to have been an Islamic State attack. There have also been attacks that at least have been blamed on Kurdish separatists. Yeah, I mean, Turkey right now faces major threats from two incredibly capable terrorist organizations. The PKK and its offshoots are focused on attacking Turkish security forces and have done so very effectively in the last year. And ISIS has only recently started to step up its attacks and they go after civilians. And in a relatively vibrant and cosmopolitan city like Istanbul, after their attack on the airport in June, it's very difficult to protect against that, especially when you're looking at a lone gunman who can walk into a nightclub and with 180 bullets kill 40 people, 39 people. Now, Dan, give us some context. I mean, why are ISIS now targeting Turkey with such ferocity? I mean, they've been around for a few years. In the past, Turkey and Erdogan were sympathetic, at least the opposition to Assad in Syria. I think there's a number of reasons. I think most importantly, Turkey is now involved in the melee in Syria in a way that brings it up against ISIS in a way that it wasn't before. It's fighting for land in Syria. It's talking ultimately of helping the effort to take Raqqa. This is a much more aggressive role that Turkey's taken in the region. We saw in recent years it was really more or less content to see the Islamist opposition fight Assad and didn't worry itself too much about a few bad apples, like ISIS, as they saw it, taking part in that anti-Assad effort. Now, even though Turkey's effort in Syria is arguably primarily focused against the Kurds, it's bumping up against ISIS in a way that it wasn't. But the other point is simply time and scale. Six years after the beginning of the Syrian civil war, there's a mountainous border with Iraq, there's a plain with Syria. So it's very easy for people to come across. The sheer crush of, what is it, Mehul, three million refugees? At least three million, yeah. All of this has an almost geological force 
that brings, quite apart from the policies of today or yesterday, the chaos and brutality of a Syrian conflict into its neighbouring state. So, Mel, there's kind of something inevitable about it that you, you can't fend off the chaos, as Dan puts it, forever. How do you think the Turkish government, though, is going to respond, both domestically and in terms of foreign policy? What Dan referred to earlier was this kind of uneasy detente, if you want to call it that, at the presence of Islamic State south of its border in Syria. For years, Islamic State controlled significant territory. And because the border is supports, there was a lot of going back and forth of goods and people, and to some extent jihadis also. One must remember that in almost every attack that's taken place in Europe that's been tied back to Islamic State militant, those militants at some point or the other spent some time in Turkey. So over that period, they've built up a network in this country of hundreds, if not thousands, of sympathizers who provide them with safe houses, who provide them with ammunition, who provide them with weapons. And because the border is so porous, because they're so dominant in areas in southern Turkey, the Turkish government really has no option but to go for a two-pronged approach, which is A, hit ISIS really hard in Syria. They're already doing that. They're trying to take over a town called Al-Bab. And that has proven to be a very difficult fight. Islamic State militants there are putting up a really, really tough resistance, including car bombs and the suicide bombings that you're seeing in the fight for Mosul in Iraq. And the second one is to really root out the Islamic State presence in southern Turkey. Now, let's not get carried away with saying that they've taken over the south in any form, but there are many of them who are sympathetic, and there's many of them who are in some way participants. And every couple of weeks, you'll see them round up 100 or 200 people that they claim to be ISIL sympathizers, but we don't know how many more there are. And the Turkish Interior Ministry really needs to do what Interior Ministries everywhere else in the world to do, is to kind of root out the possibility that these guys will have some sort of safe passage to parts of the country to then carry out attacks such like this. And yet, Dan, even faced with this terrible security threat, President Erdogan seems at times to have been preoccupied by other enemies, by his domestic political enemies, by these mass arrests we've seen in universities and the crackdown on the press following the attempted coup uh, last summer. I think there's a number of things going on here. Mr Erdogan and the Turkish military have felt for some time that the real existential enemy, the enemy who's in a sense not going away, the one that poses a threat to the integrity of a Turkish state, are the Kurdish militants in Syria who also have presences in Iraq and are connected to the PKK in Turkey itself. And so I just don't think there is any uh, mystery about that being priority number one in terms of Turkey's military offensive and its military attack. I should add as a footnote that the butchers of ISIS are also strategists and they did their very best to get the hot war between the Turks and the Kurds really going again with some awful explosions that really increased tensions in the summer of 2015. And they engineered, in a certain sense, the escalation of this conflict, which has served their purpose. But the other point is that Mr. Erdogan is involved in at least two huge battles, which would be more than enough for any normal leader. One is to try and put his state through the equivalent of radiotherapy. He says that it was infiltrated for years by this organisation called the Gulenists, who follow this imam in Pennsylvania, that they reached every single part of the bureaucracy and they have to be got rid of because they basically plotted against him and he blames the coup attempt in July on them. 
That's a huge effort and we should notice that organisations like the police and counter-terrorism experts have been enormously affected because of this, which I think may well impact the police's ability to counter the disasters like we've seen in the nightclub in Istanbul. And the other is that Mr Erdogan has a prize in his sight, which is to make his position formally the undisputed head of government and head of state in a way you can only compare to Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder of a country. That's a goal that he's had his eye on for a decade. He's now tantalisingly close to be able to do that. He's pushing through a constitution that would give him those powers and will be subject to referendum. That's also an elemental fight. That will be the most important vote that Turkey's had for many a year when they finally vote on that probably this year. So he's fighting those two big fights. And I should add, there is a Turkish habit of if you're involved in one battle, then it's convenient to include your enemies in your crusade against the Gulenists or your crusade against the PKK. Every government's done it. Every government has put in jail their political opponents, or a series of governments have, because they're linked, for reasons spurious or not, to the enemy of the day. Mr Erdogan probably is doing that to an unprecedented degree and jailing his opponents under Turkey's terrorism legislation in a way that his critics say is pushing Turkey ever further away from democracy and closer to dictatorship. So Mehul, I mean, you've got this political struggle, you've got Syria, you've got the security issues. What about the economy? I mean, one of the things that bolstered Erdogan for many years was that whatever people's political disagreements with him, the country was booming. But I gather things are not looking so great now. Today is a good day to ask that question. The Turkish lira fell to a record low of 3.6 versus the dollar. It's lost 20-25% of its value in 2016 itself. And the Turkish economy just had a contraction of 1.8% in its GDP for the third quarter last year. In many ways, the promise of Mr. Erdogan to his followers in the country is twofold. It is, you will be secure and you will be prosperous. Turks are not secure right now and their prosperity is at risk. Foreign investors have fled of the fragile five, as they like to call it. Turkey remains the most exposed to the fickle nature of foreign hot money, which seeks immediate returns and is not seeing them in Turkey right now. Turkish officials that I meet with and I talk to are quick to remind us that the long-term promise of the country remains unchanged. Strong demographics, great location, uh, strong industrial base, etc. But right now, I'd be hard-pressed to find somebody saying this is a great time to make a large investment in Turkey. The impact on people's mood, on their pocketbook, on it with inflation at 8.5% and their currency in decline, it adds to a very glum atmosphere. And as you well know, for foreign investors, sentiment matters a lot more than any other thing. And right now, sentiments with the Turkish economy are definitely not bullish. And it's definitely the first time Mr. Erdogan has faced a situation like this, which is almost entirely of this government's making, rather than the past, when you could blame it on global forces. As far as we can see, all this is going to lead to is significant more pressure on the few remaining independent state institutions here, like the Central Bank or the Turkish Statistical Institute, in order to make sure that until this referendum is held, he can paper over the flaws. So finally, Dan, it's a depressing outlook when one looks back at Turkey's position over the last decade or so, because until really quite recently, it was held up as a kind of model, a country in a very turbulent region that was a democracy that was prosperous, that was outward-looking, it looks a lot more trouble now, doesn't it? These are undisputably difficult times for Turkey. 
there's a couple of things. I mean, one is that Mr. Erdogan owes his success to something similar to people like Donald Trump. He's channeled throughout his career the anger and hostility of a part of a population that felt excluded and felt a kind of rage at the old elite that governed the country and that basically was overrepresented in its institutions. Turkey's never had particularly robust institutions. Those are the kind of politics that he's prospered on. And I think that that's part of the reason why tensions have grown so much in Turkey. The tragedy for Turkey is that all of that is now taking second place to the knock-on effect of Syria. We worry about the security risks and the risk of corroding the political atmosphere and environment in Western countries of a Syrian crisis, of a refugee crisis. We worry that it's made people more hostile to the outside world, that it's caused some political discourse, that it's increased terrorist threats. Just think how much greater that problem is on a country that's next to Syria that doesn't have the institutions that Western countries do and the challenges that Turkey therefore has to surmount in the years ahead. Daniel Dombey, thank you very much indeed. And thanks also to Mehul in Istanbul. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.